Listener Production. This was a really scary incident and I remember uh, not telling my wife until the next day about what had happened because it was really, it was, it scared the absolute pants off me. I thought my number was up. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you've listened, you already know this, but if you're new to this podcast, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's exactly what we try and do with our podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Today's guest is someone who really does know what's going on, both as someone who has seen, well, almost all of it, and someone who is now doing it for himself. Now, if you recognize the name Martin Cudahy, it's probably because you remember him as the ABC's Africa correspondent. But his LinkedIn profile describes him as a communication advisor and station hand. And maybe more uh, honestly, or maybe more directly on Instagram, he calls himself husband and dad and apprentice ringer. Martin Cudahy, welcome to The Good Oil. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Mate, there is something very specifically terrifying about interviewing a former journalist, can I tell you? So be gentle with me. I will do my level best not to embarrass myself. Maybe you can give me a sense of you as a, as a young bloke, mate. How does, how does Martin Cudahy decide that he wants to be a journo? And then how do you go from there to uh, being the ABC's Africa correspondent? Yeah, okay. So I probably spent uh, my 20s being fairly selfish. I was... Uh... <laughs> Very much. That's what your twenties are for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like so many of us, uh, yep. spent all that time focused on on myself and uh, and 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 basically trying to be the you know the best journalist that I could be. And so that yeah, that's how I spent my twenties. It was a fun time. I had a lot of fun. But I started out uh, my first job. I went to UQ in Brisbane, and then my first job after that, I went to Tamworth in northern New South Wales. Loved Tamworth, and I was a, a TV reporter there for NBN TV, which is um, yeah, like the Win affiliate, the Channel 9 affiliate. Uh, did that for 18 months, but always really, you know, I grew up in one of those houses that always had ABC radio on and always had the news on and then 7.30 report was turned on after the TV. Actually, it was, was interesting, you know, watching Kerry O'Brien on TV and then one day working alongside him when I worked for the, for the 7.30 report. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was that was um, that was where I grew up uh, in in one of those houses that was very much a you know as the, a lot of them are in regional Australia or were I should say uh, rusted on to the ABC. I think that's probably changed a little bit, particularly with um, the advent of uh, you know there there are far more places to get your news now, and I think the ABC's probably lost some of its audience share because of that. But yeah, after Tamworth, uh, to get back on track, I yeah joined the ABC as a TV reporter in Townsville, and that was a great gig as well. So back in those days, you were just a TV reporter; you didn't have to do radio, TV, online filming, tweeting, all of that sort of stuff, which uh, <laughs> yeah, which right. which I witnessed during my career. Yeah. And yeah, so did that for a couple of years, then moved to Hobart. Uh, did did five just years down in Hobart. Yeah. Hmm. Loved Tassie as well. Um, I'm, I'm really fortunate to to have been able to to see um, quite a bit of Australia with with the ABC and and you know to to get paid to do it, which was also pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, spent five years in Tassie, and f- when I was there, I worked for you know radio news, TV news, built those basic skills up in a in a sort of a. Um, not quite a metropolitan newsroom, although the the uh, Hobartians would argue that it is. <laughs> and then uh, and then from there, 
uh, started working for Seven Thirty Report before it changed to Seven Thirty when when Kerry O'Brien retired, and that was a great retirement party. I'll tell you about that offline. Um, <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Yeah. And then we moved from Hobart to Sydney. Lived in Sydney for about eighteen months, and from there I, I sort of ticked the final box, if you like. Um, before you can become a correspondent, and that was working for Radio Current Affairs, so AM, PM, and The World Today. And so you sort of have to have ticked off those radio news, television news, television current affairs, radio current affairs, uh, before you'll, you'll be looked at seriously as a correspondent. And uh, so that's that was, you know, I was working my way through those in in uh, to, to try and get there. And from, from Sydney, we moved to Nairobi, or as uh, some of the locals like to call it, Nairobbery. <laughs> is that uh, is it your experience as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Had, had a couple of brushes <laughs> with... I uh, uh, <laughs> uh, had things pinched a couple of times, including a very expensive ABC camera, which uh, was a hard phone call to make. But, uh, yeah, actually, would you believe that that camera got stolen while we were filming The Pope? I feel like that's... <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said about that. I'm not yeah, sure which way, yeah, which way we go there. There, there. There's there are forces at, forces at play. Yeah, that's right. I'm not, I'm not sure how, where we draw the parallels, <laughs> but they're there. Mate, so that's. I mean, that is a that is a remarkable career in itself. You obviously you won't say this. You're obviously a, a talented, hardworking bloke. Because not everyone gets a chance to to do those things to work on ABC uh, News, Current Affairs, seven thirty, and then and then as a correspondent. That is a that's a top shelf uh, career. Did you did you always want to? Was it was that a very specific objective? Was it always I'm going to go and build these skills and be this person? How, how did how did well? I guess firstly, how did journalism become your thing? And then how did you think about? Was was it always I'm going to go and be a correspondent? Here's what I need to do. Was it a case of just following your nose? How does that how does that work out in your early career? Well, I decided on journalism because I was never much good at maths. So, you know, <laughs> so you know that if you can't count, you better be able to yeah, talk. Yeah, that's right? right. So, yeah, communicating was always a strength. I enjoy telling <laughs> stories, and I enjoy talking to people. And 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 you know, one thing that journalism has given me is 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 uh, exposure to lots of different walks of life. You know, I've spoken to people in the slums of of uh, Kibera there in Nairobi and I've spoken to world leaders. It um, it really gives you um, the skills and, and, and techniques to talk to anybody from any walk of life. And I think the biggest thing you can learn there is just to be empathetic, you know, just to try and see things from somebody else's point of view and that will, that will go a long way towards um, building up a good rapport with someone. But um, in terms of... Uh, I, I guess I was pretty focused. Yeah, as I said, I was pretty selfish in my 20s. I was really only concerned about um, what was happening to me and, and how I could better myself. And, and when I, when I, you know, my first, when I moved to Tamworth, my, you know, my career goal was to, to get to the ABC. And then when I got to the ABC, um, my career goal was to be a foreign correspondent. And so, yeah, I knew that at that um that you had to tick off those boxes, like you had to work for for those certain programs. You, you get sort of a um, a level of credibility, if you like, if, if you can work with those pressures, particularly with radio current affairs. You know those sorts of stories. You get into work at four a.m. AM goes to where at eight, and you've got to have a story ready to go at eight if there's something that's happened overnight or or so. You know the, the time pressures that you work under there. It really builds. Um, uh, you're you're adaptable and you're able to deal with stress really quite well, and I've I've found that that's something that I've carried over. I tend not to get as stressed as as um, some other people will, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I was I did have a pretty um, pretty laser focus, and I have to um, 
pay credit to my wife Jane as well, who who is a journalist as well by trade, and she she came along for the ride and she supported me a hundred percent the whole way. She's been um, a great support, and I certainly you know I, I off we we complement each other in the fact that I'm like we need to go here, you know, and she goes well these are the steps you got to take. You got to go to A, you got to go to B. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so it it is. Yeah, yeah. She 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 keeps me grounded, and and she's been um uh, uh you know. She's my better half, basically. Nice, mate. Nice. I think uh, a few of us are lucky enough to have have that sort of person in our lives too, mate. Um, what what did you learn about people in, in your career as a journalist? I know it's a very vague and, and big question, but uh, you know, you, you've seen as you've seen a lot of it, not at all, but seen seen a lot of it, seen met a lot of people, done a lot of things. Are there any lasting uh, observations or, or, or frustrations or, or you know things you kind of bring away and go? That's there. Some of those those lasting impressions from from that career. Yeah, I think um, there, there are a number, actually. I mean, one of them is, the, you know, what stress does to people, what high-pressure situations. And I can remember <clears throat> at one stage, and this was this was a really scary incident, and I remember uh, not telling my wife until the next day about what had happened because it was really, it was, it scared the absolute pants off me. I thought my number was up. We, um... So myself and my two Kenyan producers were filming this story in Mombasa, coastal city in uh, Kenya, and the story was about the fact that these uh, um, tourists, they were basically sex tourists, were coming down from Europe and they were using child prostitutes in this in this area, this red light district of Mombasa. So this story went to air on 7.30 report. And... Um, when while we were filming, we went inside this nightclub, and and there were clearly children on the dance floor, and um, we filmed with our mobile phones surreptitiously, as you do, because uh, you really don't want to draw attention to yourself. And then I made a bad judgment call when we got outside the club, so we had that footage in our pockets, and then I said we need to get some location shots, so we need to get um, you know what we called scene setters or location shots or general vision, and that is basically wider shots of the street and and the landscape where you are just so people can get a get a sense of, of, of that location before you go inside and so that would be the part where I would say you know it is in this district in in uh, in Mombasa where this sort of thing happens and so we pulled out our big camera our TV camera to film that and this was at you know I think it was about 11 30 uh, just before midnight somewhere there and, of course, as you can imagine, a, uh, a bald white guy in Kenya with a TV camera, uh, you know, nearly midnight, is going to attract, yeah, in the red light district, that's going to attract some attention. And that was my call and, and uh, I shouldn't have made that call, but we did. And what happened was a lot of the security guards or bouncers at these establishments saw us and then um, they must have called for backup and then one thing led to another and there was uh, essentially a vigilante mob or a... I guess they weren't really vigilantes, but there was a mob surrounding us and they had um, uh, machetes and, and sticks and they basically pushed us into a van. And, uh, and uh, I, yeah, as I said, I thought uh, my number was up. And one of the guys that I worked with, he was, you know, he had a lot of bravado and he was very, very good at his job, but he panicked. He went to water and he was our guy with the local language skills. And so, you know, my Swahili was... Uh, Kidogo, Kidogo, which is quite small, <laughs> and so basically it was left up to me and my other my other colleague, a Zimbabwean guy who spoke about this, you know, a similar amount of Swahili to me to try and talk these guys down because they were, you know, they were 
when when people get in a group like that, they get all riled up and and the the, the uh, blood pressure's high. They 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 can make erratic decisions. And eventually, someone said, I can't remember exactly how it went, but someone said something about you're as bad as terrorists. And I said, all right, well, if you take us to the police. Uh, we'll confess to the police our crimes. And that seemed to give them an, a way out. And I right. knew that if we got to the police, we could bribe our way out of there, no worries at all. <laughs> so, so, not to besmirch wow, mate, the Kenyan a... uh, police force. But, <laughs> but, you could prevail on their, on their better nature with, with, with a few that's dollars. That's right. So, so that's what happened. They took us to the wow. police station. Yeah. Um, I think the police knew that we were okay because we had all our press passes and they locked us in a cell in inverted commas. Um, they, they made us delete the footage while one of these guys watched on while we deleted the footage, so we did that. Fortunately, we still had what was on our phones. They didn't think to, to look at that. And then, um, and then the mob or those guys left and, uh, yeah, and then we um, managed to convince the, uh, the police there to let us go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a story, man. I'm glad you, glad you made it out alive. Um, one, one last media, media question. I have to ask this because you may have mentioned Kerry O'Brien a couple of times. Uh, I assume you probably also worked with Mark Colvin during that, during that period. Um, some of the absolute giants of, of journalism, certainly through my younger years and I assume your younger years, um, just a chance to name check some of those and, and maybe some things you learned from, from, from a couple of the giants. I uh, I didn't work in the same office as Kerry. As I said, I was in Tassie when um, when when he was there. But I would you know, if you had a story going on, he, occasionally he would ring, and uh, you know just ask you a, be- a couple of questions. And and he was he was really uh, you know very very smart man, and uh, but very direct, very to the point. You know he didn't <laughs> okay. didn't brook a lot of nonsense, Kerry. So <laughs> but, no, no, um, no one who watched him will be surprised by that. Can I say? No, no, but he was he was he was really nice. He was lovely and he was encouraging and and um and the same can be said for Mark Colvin um and and Lee Sales for that matter as well. You know, I've I've worked with both of those two and um but you know, it was it was a real shame Mark Colvin was taken before his time, yeah. but he he was particularly generous to a lot of the younger journalists and um I I found whenever I was writing a script and I knew that it was it was going to be on PM I would have his voice in my head, and, <laughs> and so if if it didn't sound like something he would say, you know, you, you couldn't write it down, write it down. So, but he was, yeah, he was really. And I, I guess the thing that will leave the the lasting impression of Mark is he had a brain like a planet, you know, just and he was so experienced and and um and worldly. And actually, he told me a very very funny story when I was going to Africa. He gave he gave me a book to read, and um. And he told me this funny story. He was based in in Europe, and he went down to um, he flew to Nairobi, and he was flying into um, Somalia, and he got on this plane in Nairobi, and this was back in the eighties, I think the early eighties, and it was Air Somalia, and this is sort of before the warlords took over and things went completely pear shaped in Somalia, but he got on this plane, and he got inside, and the wallpaper was all koalas and kangaroos and. And it was it was an old Qantas plane that they'd bought from from perhaps the sixties, and anyway, it was a twin turboprop. And uh, and he said, and the pilot got on, and and the pilot was um, it was a he was from the RAF in the Second World War. Mark said so he, you know, he was very prim and proper British pilot, and he comes on over the speaker, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be heading to the end of the uh, taxiway before heading up to uh, Somalia. And then anyway, they, they taxi out to the end of the runway and, and as they do on those turbo props, they, they gun the engines and um, 
So the engines start roaring at the end of the runway and then Mark said there was the strangest noise. He heard this terrific bang and then this noise and then two seats in front of him, one of the propellers came through the side of the plane and landed right in front of the face of one of the passengers. So it had dislodged. The propeller had come off and gone through the side of the plane and lodged right in front of this gentleman. And, you know, if it had hit him, it would have killed him. But anyway, Mark said the funniest thing was the British pilot came on over the uh, intercom and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we appear to be having some minor engine troubles. We'll be heading back to the terminal. <laughs> I don't know if you want to hear uh, aircraft stories before you go to Africa, do you? I mean, a funny story, but I'm thinking, I guess it's always in your mind when you, whenever, you, whenever you jump on a plane over there, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I um, probably should have done a bit more due diligence before flying into <laughs> Juba once. We got on this, it was a fl- company called Mango Jet, which probably should raise alarm bells to start with. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then when we landed, all the South Sudanese people started clapping. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, I soon learnt that um, they didn't have a terrific track record. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, do a bit more due diligence. Look That's always, always good after the fact. They'll always be able to, uh, when, you, when you've landed, they've done the clapping, you can. You can yeah. uh, respond to that, that's right. mate. Um, so look, that's that's the first half of your career, I suppose, or maybe not half. I'm not sure where it ends up, but um, at some point, you say, you know what, this whole journalism thing that I've worked my entire life for, uh, this is actually not what I'm going to go and do. I'm going to go to the middle of Queensland, and I'm going to, as you say, raise and sell cattle. Um, I'm curious as to I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and it's very different in some cases but also very similar because there's that idea of I've got this great career I'm, I'm Martin Cuddity right and I don't mean this to, to big you up but you know you've, you're, you're a very well known bloke you can, you, you, can, you can pretty much you know um, uh, assume you're going to have a career for as long as you want it in, in high quality journalism but you, you take a, a left turn and say I'm going to go and do this instead just maybe talk me through how that idea starts to germinate, how you think it through, and then how you end up saying, you know what, I'm I'm chucking in this journalism thing that I'm very good at, very well known for, and I'm going to go and raise cattle. So my wife and I, we've we both, I grew up on a small farm down in southern Queensland, outside a little town called Dolby, and you know we were pretty close to town, didn't have um, you know a lot of land there. There was a couple of hundred acres, but that that was. You know, that was the life that I grew up in, you know, playing out in the paddocks and swimming in dams and doing all that sort of thing. And so when we were overseas, uh, so we had Ted, when our oldest son, uh, when we were living in, in uh, Tassie and then we moved to Sydney, I think, 10 days later, so, which is not advisable if you, with an infant to interstate moves. Yeah. And then we moved to Kenya and we had two daughters over there. So Maeve and Margot both have a place of birth, Nairobi, on their Australian passports. So um, also would advise against the um, having children in uh, the Kenyan health system if you can. Um, just just a tip. Uh, and right. so, so we ended up with three kids. Yep. And as I said, it was pretty selfish. Early on, and then I guess mm. you know, as as you would know, and as as a lot of those parents out there would know, once you've got kids, your priorities change. You know, you start you start you start putting yourself. Um, you, you're not at the top anymore, so you put them at the top. And one of the things that Jane and I always wanted to do was was to bring our kids up in the bush if we could. And um, so her her family actually have have um, these two cattle stations, and there was an opportunity for us to to go and and. Um, move back. So when we moved back from from Africa, we moved to Cairns in North Queensland and we didn't 
we just didn't um, didn't gel with that place. And then uh, I decided that I would take some long service leave and you know just give it a taste, see if we see it was something we wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to have that that long service leave, so I could you know take a risk, but have a safety net there. And so that's what I did. I, I took six months off. So I had three months long service, took it at half pay over six months and um, went and worked for my father-in-law and my sister-in-law with them every day. And, um, and something that came back to me when I started that work. And, you know, I have to say, I thought that I probably, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I thought I was probably somewhere around a, a six in terms of knowing what I was doing. But it, yeah, it turns out I was probably more like a one and a half. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably a six now. So <laughs> after five years, so yeah, that's that's you know that gives you an indication of of so they they had a lot of patience um, teaching me uh, an, an apprenticeship essentially, and I was very fortunate to be able to have um, the support of them to do that, um, but. But, yeah, there was something that came back to me. My father had said to me years earlier, and that is that if there's dirt in your blood, you can't wash it out. And, yeah, so, and so that's always stuck with me. I, I, I want to come back to the apprenticeship, mate, but, but before we leave your, your media career entirely, uh, I, I just want to, I guess, drill a bit further down because there's one thing that says I want to go and raise the kids in the bush. Uh, you know, you grew up on a farm, as you say. It was in the blood. By the same token, you're still giving up a lot. You know, there's, there's something about when you're young, you can flip between careers and, you know, you, you're, you're doing okay, but you can kind of change stuff around. You'd reached a, a, a very high point in, in your career and in journalism generally. And again, I'm not just trying to big you up here, but, you know, you're a situation where you, you, weren't, you weren't a struggling journo, you know, spent 25 years trying to make it in regional uh, you know, South Australia and haven't quite cracked it. And maybe I'll try something else. You've gone for a position of success and, and you're very well known with a very good reputation. Uh, there must have been the nights where you thought, gee, I want to do the right thing by the kids, but can I afford to give this up? Do I want to give this up? Isn't this who I am? How, how did you wrestle with some of those questions? Yeah, you're right. And there are still times now where I wonder if I've made the right decision, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but uh, and I'm sure when the drought comes, though, <laughs> that will, uh, that'll be the case even more so. Um, yeah, you're right. There, there, there have been times when I've asked myself, you know, did, was is this the right call? Should I have done this? And and I probably could have gone on and and then you know either kept going with the ABC or looked for a job in PR that probably would have paid obscene amounts of money. So so that that certainly and and you know I mean I'm 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 certainly not earning an obscene amount of money, but I guess yeah you you do prioritize what your values are and what is what is what is more important in life and I think the fact that I can go from motorbike ride with the kids after work or they can ride horses or or you know I can work I can work a Sunday if I need to take Friday off to go and do things there's a bit of flexibility there but it's also there's it's hard to describe but you, you when you're a journalist you do get a lot of um wins if you like so you know if you get an exclusive interview or if you do a really good job with the story or if you if you um find you know if you expose something that 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 hasn't been exposed before you get those buzzes um you know they're they're wins essentially You, you get a similar sort of thing doing what i'm doing now if i can find a problem and fix it you know whether that's just a um you know why is there no water in this tank what's happening you know i need to go and find you get you get you get more wins, but they're little wins, and and I guess and this is probably something that that a lot of people don't realise is that 
when you're working for a private enterprise, you know, you're, you're playing with somebody else's money. Whereas when you work for the ABC, if I make a mistake, if I get somebody's name wrong or if I, if I get my facts backwards, you know, no, nobody gets hurt. It doesn't cost, doesn't cost any more or any less than, than what it would otherwise have done had it been 100% correct. You know, of course, you do go back and you correct those mistakes as a journalist. But, but you're, you, you know, if, if you make a mistake here, if, if you don't check the waters and then all of a sudden you've got 120 dead animals that is worth, you know, a quarter of a million bucks, that, those sorts of, of repercussions are huge. So I think that, that's a big difference, a really big difference. You know, it's, it's actually you do learn to place a value on something that is, that is um, I guess, something that I hadn't realised, that's for sure. I thought an apprenticeship uh, as a ringer was, was a tough ask. And then you told me you did it for your father-in-law. Now, I'm sure your father-in-law's a lovely bloke, but th- there's, there's got to be a certain degree of uh, a family pressure and not a small amount of pride having, having married his daughter and then uh, try, trying to learn how to uh, run a cattle station from, from the bottom up. Uh, you said you thought you were a six, you were a one. How, how were the first couple of weeks? What, what was that? What are your memories of that time? Um... I realised I was pretty unfit to start with, you know, <laughs> you know and, and I, I think that was when I realised just how little I knew and, and, and that this was perhaps a, you know, a bigger ask than I had initially envisaged for myself. So, mm-hmm. so that, was, that was a real shock to the system. But um, in saying that, you know, they, they were patient and, and, and really good to me and, but there were times when um, I'm sure they were thinking, my God, what have we done? <laughs> Jane, it's not yeah. too late. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and by the same token, there were times when I thought, you know, yeah. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, yeah, but in, in saying that, you know, I, it has been fun and, and, and it, is, it is a fun job and there are certainly rewards. Um, you know, there's a real variety of, of different tasks that you have to do. There's a, there's, there's a lot of enjoyment in 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 um you know the, the also the, the time your perspective on time changes because you know as i said to you before we had 4 hour deadlines or sometimes even less than that if you're working in radio news it's on the hour every hour sometimes half an hour or if you're live tweeting you know the trial of oscar pistorius you've got to keep tweeting and keep tweeting and keep tweeting <laughs> so the the pressure's constant whereas right, you, right. you do your perspective changes and in that you know, we, we look at our grazing strategies. So how many cows should we put in this paddock to eat the right amount of grass to ensure that we're actually improving the soil health, uh, making sure the cows get the best nutrition, and then we get the every, then we take the cows out and ensure that that paddock recovers, you know. So those are the, you know, it's, it's a longer time frame and, and your perspective certainly changes. And, and, you know, you look at things generationally as well. But I want to talk to you about that because, as I said at the beginning, we don't, I don't think enough of us know... Again, it's a cliche where our food comes from, but just just what life on the land is like. That you know, there was a the the, the myth or the maybe the, even the early reality of, of the Australian bushman and the you know the, the back of the, the sheep's back that kind of stuff. We all kind of feel it and we we think we know it, but I don't think we really do. And there's more and more of us born in the cities and don't get outside uh, suburbia and, and and you know the opportunity to buy lattes and and, and fresh bread and whatever else. Um, what t- tell us about the the 
I guess the business of running a station, um, you know, you, you've just talked about some of the, the, the grazing strategies, and that kind of stuff, and the, the detail there, it's uh, not that anyone thinks it's not complicated, but there's a lot more to it than just, you know, buying some cattle, putting them out on the, on the run, make sure the fences are okay, and then bringing them back in and sending them to, to slaughter. And I'm not even sure what I'm asking necessarily. Maybe tell me, if you can, what you've learned about the business of, of farming and running cattle over the last little while. So we have, so it's part of a family operation. So my wife's family um, uh, own the two stations and we're, we're running this one down here. So up north, they breed the cattle. So it's a predominantly Brahmin-based herd and we breed them for beef. So if you're enjoying an MSA steak, chances are it may have come from here. We So the cattle are bred up north and we do the growing and the finishing here. So that means that they come down here after they've been weaned. So after they've been kicked out of home, they go and live on their own. Then they move down here. Uh, they, uh, they're in a share house with a lot of other young weaners uh, and we basically grow them from that stage. So when they're about 250, 300 kilos right through to uh, what is called in the industry a Jap ox weight, but that's about a, f- a fully grown animal at 580 or 600 kilos and from there they go direct from us to the meatworks. A good way of looking at it is to think that yeah, you know, at, at its most basic level that is what it is. You can either trade cattle, which is you buy them, you put some weight on them and you sell them, or you can breed cattle. So you have um, you have cows and you have bulls, and then you sell the progeny of those. So you sell the you sell you grow out the calves and, and then you sell them. So that that is at its most basic level. But there is, as you say, there's so much more detail involved. And and like a lot of careers, you know, I can weld, but am I a boulder maker? No, <laughs> no, no. You know, so so I can fix a pipe, but am I a plumber? No, no. So there are a lot of different. Uh, there are a lot of I guess it's it's easy to do, but very hard to do well. If that yeah, makes sense, does. yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So, so we do um, within our family business, Trafalgar Pastoral Company. We do try to be very analytic and uh, objective, and 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 uh, make decisions based upon what is best for the animals, best for the people, and best for the environment. So we look at those three things, and so that means that you know. Cows, cows are animals and, and sometimes you can get a crazy one that doesn't like people and wants to hurt them. So we sell that one and we don't let that cow have calves because, you know, those genetics can be passed down. So th- things like that, you make decisions to improve the business. And so we actually look at the data of, of all the bulls. Um, so not everyone does this, particularly within the Brahmin industry. It's probably a little bit behind, say, the Angus and, the, and the, you know, in your country where you've got some of those really nice British breeds of cattle. People are very analytic and they will look at the data including, you know, th- so you'll get a list of, of um, figures called the EBVs, the estimated breeding values surrounding a bull. And, and, and this is just an estimate of what his calves will be like based upon his heritage and, um, you know, and the, the cows, so all his, you know, forebears basically. And it will look at things like um, the fertility of his daughters uh, the, the days to calving. So when you put him in house, how soon after that is, is the cow likely to have a, a calf? It will um, look at uh, something as exciting as the scrotal circumference. And would you believe that uh, the bigger the balls, the uh, the better the bull? So. <laughs> I did not know that. But now I've learned something. Mate. If nothing else, I'll remember that. That's nice. Uh, yeah, balls off the tongue. Well, there is a direct correlation between scrotal <laughs> circumference yeah, and, right. and the fertility of the female progeny of that bull. So... So his daughters will be more fertile if he's got bigger balls, basically. 
So, so things like that, you can look at, you can actually drill down into this. You can look at, um, growth rates. So 200 days, 400 days, 600 days. So for the first year, uh, how much weight those cars will put on, what sort of size they'll be, uh, you know, and you also, you want that really fast growth rate, but you don't want your car cows to have big calves because then they struggle and you've got to pull calves out. And so, you know, you want low birth weight, but high growth rate. So, you know, trying to find the middle ground there, there's, a, there's actually quite a bit that goes into it. And that's just, that's just looking at breeding. Then you've got to look at your ground, uh, your grass, because, you know, we're not much good if we can't grow grass. And, and uh, we rotate our cattle fairly frequently, and that means we put them in a paddock where there's grass, we let them eat it, and then we take them out, and then we spell that. So we give it a nice rest. We let it have some rain, uh, no pressure from cattle. And what it actually does is it, that improves the, the carbon in the soil. You get a better result. The grass grows back better, greener, and, and the cattle are happier, the country's happier. So, you know, there are these strategies that not everyone employs. You know, there are certainly plenty of operations out there that um, that don't go into this sort of detail, but we're trying to do what we can to to be the to do the best for the animals, the people, and the country. Yeah, for sure. Mate, I want to ask you about both of those elements. Uh, I'll ask you straight, not about your business because it's not none of our business, but um, what's life like for, for cattle stations? Uh, I mean, I know obviously prices fluctuate wildly. The environmental circumstances fluctuate wildly. Um, we know there tend to be fewer, larger cattle operations these days. Economies of scale matter. Um, corporate Farming corporate corporate uh, properties are obviously continuing to increase, although they go all the way back to Sydney Kidman, so maybe it's not that new after all. Uh, but how how are things on the land for for farmers and for, for station owners, mate? Well, um, like any like any industry, there, there are good operators and bad operators. And if you if you are a good operator and you do things efficiently and you track your spending and you track your uh, your income, then 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 you you've got control over your business to a large degree. So you can you can make a good living and there are people turning over uh, um, 10, 15, 20%, you know, those sorts of margins. So if it's done well and if it's done efficiently. But if not, you know, there are people who are certainly making a loss. So there is a whole range of, of um, businesses out there, like there is in any industry. You know, you've got dodgy builders and you've got builders who, who, who come in on a Sunday and work because, because it's, it's the right thing to do. So... So I, I think, but in general terms, the last couple of years have been a bit of a golden triangle, particularly for the beef industry. We've had high beef prices. We've had low interest rates, as I'm sure you've, uh, you would have uh, encountered that at some point. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Measure that one yeah. across, yeah. Uh, so so um, and, and, and land prices have gone up. So if you've held land, um, land prices have gone up a crazy amount. I think in the last 10 years in this district where I am, it's gone up um, – more than 100%. And is that being driven by the combination of prices and and kind of, the you know, obviously the rainfall and climate? I mean, there's, or is it just supply and demand? More people want to be on the land? What's pushing those prices up? Well, there is a big, as you said, there is becoming a concentration of ownership within within farming across Australia. And I can't remember the stats. Now, these figures could be wrong, so do your own research. But I think it's something like there's, there's 25,000 beef farming families in Australia and by 2050 there'll be 5,000. It's something like that. Yeah, so there, there is a concentration happening at the moment. People are, people are either expanding or they're getting out, you know, and, so, and that's where your economies of scale come in. You know, if you've got two properties, you know, you, you don't need two bulldozers or two graders or whatever that piece of machinery that you need 
might be, you know, you might only need one tractor to run those two properties. It just depends on 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 you know what you need and 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 where you can find that sweet spot for your economy of scale. So there is quite a bit of that happening. A lot of people, um, you know, the good farmers are expanding. Um, there are, you know, the average age of Australian farmers is, uh, is I think it's around 60. Maybe it's even older than 60. So there are quite a few that are in that uh, uh, looking to cash in their super. And for, for most farmers, their super is their property. So, so you know, that, that, that's where people are going. So there is a consolidation, if you like, happening within uh, Australia's agriculture at the moment. But... Um, and, you know, whether that's a good or a bad thing remains to be seen. We'll just have to wait and see. But I think, you know, interest rates have been going up um, uh, and um, cattle prices are going the other way at the moment. So they've softened in the last couple of months. Um, so, you know, I do think we'll see that property market slow down, certainly. And, um, yeah, but, but you know, in saying that, that these things go in cycles. So there's probably going to be an opportunity for astute buyers who who haven't um, who haven't uh, spent their money when 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 prices are crazy. I think at the moment around here it's about three thousand dollars an acre. So for for ten thousand acres, you're looking at thirty million bucks. Yeah, that's a lot of dough, mate. I, I, this is this is not about me. It's about you. But uh, I can I have to say because I, I live out out of the um, out of the, the big smoke out of the city, not that far away. But I get the country hour on ABC. And the cattle price at the end of the country hour mean nothing to me because I'm not in the cattle game, but I just like the fact that someone on radio is actually running through the different cattle prices, the different sale yards across across the state and across the country. Uh, there's something, I don't know, again, it's probably just a bit, a bit of romance and probably unreasonable romance given you're out there actually doing it. But I do like the fact that we still we still have that as part of a very small part of, of radio transmission across the country. Yeah, I still I still listen to the country hour. Yeah, don't worry, and there are plenty of people in the bush who do, and it's and it's terrific. And I think I, d- I don't think I touched on this before when you mentioned it, but there certainly is a romanticism involved in the bush, and 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 to a large extent that that um, goes back to you know as you said we we rode on the sheep's back for for such a long time, but you know a generation ago perhaps everyone had uh, an uncle in the bush or on a farm somewhere. And I think that's becoming less and less common with that consolidation of ownership. And, and just as, as our population grows, you know, there are more and more people who are multi-generational in the cities, whereas, um, whereas that, that wasn't the case a generation ago. So that, there is still that romanticism because we, we still live with, um, you know, the legacy of, of, of Bush poets, Banjo Patterson, and we still have politicians that don their Akubra any time they head west of the Blue Mountains. A brand new one. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> and and none of them seem to get it right in terms of their hats, yeah. so, except if you're in the Nationals, but, you know, we, <laughs> they, they, they seem to be able to pick their hats pretty well. That's a that's a good. So uh, probably probably not an electoral uh, problem either. Hey, um, mate, uh, we're gonna know our favourite question in a second. I, I do want to kind of round this out. You, you talked about the land a, a couple of times, mate. And again, this obviously the the basic uh, the basis, sorry, of of your business. And there was a lot talked about the environment for obviously very good reasons. Now, on one hand, I'm asking a farmer, so you you give me your answer, but also you're you're a, a smart, credible bloke who's been on both sides of this conversation. Not as both sides as right to put it, but you've you've been not on the land and then on the land again. Um, the, the environmental challenges facing the world and the concerns about what farming is doing or not doing to the country. I, I, as you said, there are good examples and bad examples. There are people who are not doing the right thing and who are. How, how how are you guys thinking about how are you coping with and maybe not just just Trafalgar but the, the sector as a whole 
no, you've got mates up and down, up and down. I'm sure the the country don't speak too too well of anybody. Uh, but I'm just curious, is your your take? You look around, you think, gee, we're getting this right. You look around and think, well, we're rotating our, our, our cattle, but these guys really still aren't getting it. How's that playing out? What's what's the role of of farming in in the future of of environmental action? Well, this is this is a really Hard question, actually, Scott. And, Sorry. And, and, and there aren't. Yeah, that, that. I mean, you must play your hard questions. Yeah. Give me one. Come on. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, okay. I can probably cop this one on the chin. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, th- this is a difficult question because uh, because there is such a a range of farming enterprises as, as well as um, farming practices within all of those enterprises. You know, so so what someone who, who's growing sugarcane. Uh, in the Burdekin, you know, south of Townsville, there does is, is not going to be very different to me. But I think, I think on the whole, there is a lot of goodwill amongst uh, agriculture to do the right thing. Um, a lot of people are, um, you know, the, the, the bush has this this funny. I guess the the people in the bush have this. Uh, I guess they don't really like to be told what to do, so. But if you can hold their hand and show them why it's the right thing to do, then I think you'll have far better results. And too often policy has been dictated to the bush rather than the other way around. And so if, if the bush can see the benefits and, and you know, a lot of these, a lot of these industry um, best practice um, where they're using best practice – that actually makes economic sense as well as environmental sense. So it makes no sense to deplete the nutrients in your soil at all because, you know, you're just going to have a worse crop or, um, you know, your pasture won't be as good. And so a lot of people are actually making those steps, even if they're, they're taking those steps in the right direction, even if they're doing them for um, financial reasons rather than environmental reasons. So, so I think if the benefits can be demonstrated, there will be a broader uptake of, of that um, – uh, of those um, practices to to improve our environmental outcomes, but like like just here at Bayugal, for example, we've got um, a couple of different trials that are happening here. One of them is is trying to improve uh, the so there are satellites at the moment that can take pictures of your grass of of what's called the ground cover, and so they can tell you how much coverage there is over the bare earth, but they can't tell you sort of what the volume of that grass will be. So how much grass is actually there available for the stock to eat? And so we're involved in a trial to try and help improve the technology. So essentially ground-truthing the satellite imagery. So they'll be able to take a picture and get a better idea of the volume of grass there. Um, so that's just one example. Another one we're doing is um, we're trying the, uh, with the Department of Environment and Science here in Queensland, we're trying to work out how much sediment actually runs off our pastures. So we are in the Great Barrier Reef catchment. We don't want mm. that sediment out there on the Great Barrier Reef because we want it here in our paddocks where it's going to do. Absolutely, you know, it's going to be a lot better, better yeah. here if we can retain that. So we're, we're we're enabling them to do a trial here on our property so we can get a better understanding of of what that sediment is like, how much topsoil, if any, we're losing, and we and we always try and keep a um, a really high percentage of ground cover. So even if the grass is eaten down, we leave the base of that plant there. So that that improves. So when your rain does come, you actually um, that breaks up the rainfall and doesn't create a hard pan when the rain hits the ground. You get more rain that goes in. You get a better response from your grass, and you actually you know it's it's better for the environment. It's better for the cattle. You get a faster response out of your grass. So th- there are practices that people are doing, and on the whole, I think agriculture is is 
I think it's it's probably vilified to yeah, to a degree exactly. for some, for yeah. And I, I don't think that that's entirely warranted. Like one one of the issues that came out of the budget was the biosecurity levy. So that's <laughs> something that farmers are going to have to pay for. When, yeah. You know, and so that price is going to get passed on. So people, you know, um, whether whether we get to pass it on or whether that comes from the wholesalers <laughs> will be another matter. But but those are the sorts mm. of things that you know that that was sprung on industry without any consultation, as far as as far as I'm aware. So you know, all of a sudden you've got to pay more to do something that that you know. We, we don't actually – we're the ones who are the benefi- beneficiaries of the biosecurity <laughs> measures that are in place in Australia. We're, we're not the ones who are actually bringing stuff <laughs> into right, the country exactly. that, that pose a risk. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, it seemed a little bit backward to me and, and, and disappointing too that there was uh, basically no consultation. The phase out of the live sheep export in WA, that's another mm. one. And, 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 you know, think, think what you like about uh, live export that – the central issue here is the fact that um, the government is taking away an industry in a free market, and uh, and that's not fair. Again, that that was I mean it was a platform they did take to the election, but they're taking away a market in a capitalist society. And if you only care about the animals, then that's great because the animals that are transported from other countries certainly won't have the uh, the level of uh, biosecurity and the level of animal welfare standards that Australia imposes. So I just think that that, again, was a misstep by the government. They should be walking hand-in-hand with agriculture rather than dictating a bit more. Mm. Yeah, I think there's there's actually parallels with that with some of the uh, uh, minerals exports from the country. If we don't do it, someone else is going to. We won't get into that in detail, but I think you're right. The market doesn't cease to exist because we cease to to take part in it, which which I think is an issue. Mate, uh, you've been very, very generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, let's get to our last uh, favourite questions. Before I do, though, um, you mentioned to me uh, before we started recording, your wife, Jane, does do some agriculture podcasts, and it would be remiss of me and not fair on her and, frankly, hopefully get you a couple of brownie points. Um, if uh, Just maybe, maybe tell us what they are and what she covers, because if the listeners are enjoying this chat, and I'm sure they are, uh, more, more from the bush is, is better than worse. So what's, what, is, what does Jane do? So Jane um, is a freelance uh, journalist. She works from home. So she teaches our kids in the morning because they do distance ed um, and then in the afternoons she runs a business and in the evenings and in the mornings before school and, <laughs> and on weekends. So, yeah, so she um, hosts and produces a couple of podcasts. Uh, some of them are in- very industry-specific ones. Um, uh, but What's Your Beef is a really interesting one. So the beef event in Rockhampton, um, everyone would have heard of that. It's the biggest uh, cow expo in the world so that's uh, called what's your beef and it, it, it you know details some of the um, uh, identities and some of the issues within the beef industry so you know some really interesting stuff in there she's also um, involved with agri futures which is a uh, you know a forward-looking looking at emerging trends and, and what's the next um, what's the next space that you you could um, look for growth within agriculture. So AgriFutures is another one. And uh, the very aptly titled, There's an Elephant in My Paddock, which looks at, <laughs> which looks at sticky questions within agriculture, you know, so difficult things like sheep export or, or right. you know, are we doing enough to ensure uh, that the, the reef is okay? So, you know, tricky ones, curveballs, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so those are three that she's involved with. I'm sure there are a couple of others that I've missed as well. 
They sound fascinating. So the elephant in my paddock, agri futures, and what's your beef? Uh, I will while, while we're here, mate. Um, I don't know if you're doing. Uh, uh, are you kind of doing some uh, social media stuff that people can follow? Or is it just kind of keeping it yourself to your own thing? Is it, it, to the extent you want people to follow you, how, how could they do that? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active. So that's just at Martin Cudahy. I was one of the early adopters, lucky enough to get my own name there. So. Yeah, so so at Martin Cudahy on Twitter, that's probably where I'm most active. I think the others have um, uh, security settings. That <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm on Instagram as well, but I'm very infrequent. In fact, uh, judging by what you said about my uh, bio there, perhaps I should go and update that. <laughs> Don't do it, yeah, mate. Wait, wait till we get aware at least, otherwise I'll look like a liar. Uh, all right, yeah, mate, okay. let, let, let's finish off with our favourite questions. Uh, to the extent you have any spare time, mate, what I'm sure is a uh, hard to separate work life and, and home life. I'm sure. Uh, what are you reading, watching, streaming, listening to at the moment? Uh, I'm reading a book called August by Callan Wink. Uh, my sister gave it to me for my birthday recently, and it's it's fiction. It's set in uh, it's a coming of age story set in the US, and I'm really thoroughly enjoying it. It's uh, so that um, that's currently what I'm reading. I think the one I read before that was. Uh, uh, an industry booklet about uh, grass species, so I won't go into those details. <laughs> Life of but, a farmer right there. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, what was the other one? Sorry, what are you watching? Oh, and just st- streaming or listening to uh, or watching just, you know, well, that's, that's um, got your attention. I listen to a few podcasts, yeah, actually, because I do spend a bit of time uh, uh, trying to protect the biosecurity of this property, spraying weeds. And so <laughs> so I put a podcast in when I'm doing that because it's hardly uh, exactly um, taxing on the on the grey matter. So I listen to a few podcasts. I like uh, The Economist. I think yes, they have nice. a good a good economist. They've got a really good um, uh can't think of exactly what it's called, but um, the, the future gazing one. Uh, it's a it's a good podcast. I uh, I occasionally will listen to the Meat Eater by Stephen Ranella. Okay. He's an interesting character. He um, he's actually takes a very cerebral look at at hunting, and so and, oh, and I see. yeah, so he's got a fine arts degree. He's actually really well read, and he gets on some really interesting people on that podcast, like authors, you know. I think the name of one of the podcasts was Eating Folk in the Arctic, which was, <laughs> which was about a, uh, a polar exploration expedition that went horribly wrong. Oh, dear. So, so yeah, I, yeah, I tend to listen to a few of those. Uh, listen to The Motley Fool. Oh, good and, man. There you go. And, you. Uh, and, and a couple of others. You know, um, I, I listened to one on the BBC recently. It was all about uh, the lead-up to January 6th. Um, yeah, it was really interesting, you know, just about the, the radicalisation. Down the Rabbit Hole was another good one. It was a New York Times one about how people get radicalised. So, yeah, I still try and keep my ear to the ground with, with a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I do I enjoy. I bet. Yeah. Do, do, uh, half, half tangent question. Do you miss that? I do. Yeah, I do still miss it at, at times, particularly if I see something that oh, – there are two occasions when I really miss it. One, if I see someone doing a really bad job, I just wish I was there to – you know, I could have rewritten that bit for you and helped you out. Yeah. That and, and then also when there's a big story, you know, you sort of you, you, because you know, let's be honest, the, the adrenaline—that's one of the reasons why you do it. And so, yeah, you right. do you do miss that rush, nice. uh, mate. This one's probably probably maybe obvious by the conversation we've just had. My my second question is: What trends are you watching or keeping an eye on? But given, I mean, given the the range of experience, maybe it's all about grass, maybe it's about January six, maybe it's somewhere in between or nothing at all. Uh, what, what's kind of keeping you fascinated um, about I, what's changing well, in the world? Trends, I look at the cattle prices, so I do listen to the country out for those. So that's probably one of the trends. But I think... I think um, Fair, that's good. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't played with it a lot, but I think AI 
you know, that's a trend that is certainly going to be changing. Uh, you know, it's going to be changing a lot of workplaces. It's going to be changing a lot of workflows, I think, in the, particularly in the coming years. And it's also some, something we probably should um, make sure that uh, we don't let the horse bolt. Yeah. Maybe the journal you were thinking about could uh, type in, write, write this story in the style of Martin Cudahy. That might, uh, that might solve yeah, that. That's solve right. ChatGPT will help with that one. And mate, what advice would you give us? This is normally a question about your industry. You've, you've had a couple of different lives. So what advice would you give someone who was interested in a job in either farming or the media? Um, just, so with, I'll start with the media because that was my first, uh, first career, if you like. I think you've got to be willing to go regional to start with. You know, I went, I went to Tamworth and then I went to Townsville and then I went to Hobart before I got to Sydney. So, and, and you know, you've got to be willing to at least, my sister, um, she works in professional communications at the moment, she went to uh, Charleville and Roma, you know, so you've got to be willing to, to when she was in the media, she, she worked in papers. So you've got to be willing to start at the bottom essentially, you know, you, you can't, be the producer of the seven thirty report on your first in your first month, you know. You, so, and and just be be um be professional and be willing. You know, you've got you know if someone says, "Can you write a story about how we should all be safe on the roads this Easter?" Yep, do it with a smile on your face. You know, it's boring and it's the same thing we do every year, but just <laughs> but just do it. Suck yeah. it up, smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think that's that with media particularly and. And read, mm. just read widely. Read magazines, mm. read newspapers, read books, um, read whatever you can get your hands on. I think that's that's one of the biggest things because there, you know, and and this is perhaps one of the problems with the media today. There is there is a bit of a a, a regional um, bias, I guess. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this correctly, but you know, when I was in the Sydney newsroom, I remember the the live export ban. And they came and said, can you come and have a look at this story before we publish it online? And I said, yeah, sure. I came and had a look. And the story was written perfectly. There's nothing wrong with that. But then I looked at the picture that they had to go with this story. And the picture was of a dairy cow, which was clearly not the sort of cow <laughs> that they were talking about <laughs> right, being exported right. from North Queensland. It's just little things like that. That So just yeah, you know, yeah. try, and, try and widen your perspective and, and be aware of, of – um, so I guess that's a big thing for journalists, yeah. As for advice for young people willing to get into agriculture – I'm not sure there are that many of them because the industry is crying out for workers, Scott. It really is. So if you know of anyone, you can give them my number. <laughs> Send them your yeah. way. Perfect. Yeah. Wait, there's going to be worse lifestyles. I, the, the romantic part of me, speaking of romanticism, you know, wishes I had, I'd gone and, and been a jackaroo for a year at 18 or something like that and actually had that experience. I'm probably, uh, speaking of old and unfit, or you were, you were unfit, I'm speaking about being old, but either way, I'm probably past that now. But uh, yes, I, part of me wishes I'd done a little bit more of that when I was, when I was yeah, younger. Yeah, and I think there are certain advantages that... that um, you know, if we if you want to talk about housing, Scott, which I know you love doing, um, <laughs> you know, one one of the things with agriculture, if you look for a career and you want to, ha- if you're happy to work in a place that's not quite as uh, as uh, metropolitan and not quite as connected, you know, housing is often thrown in with these jobs. So so you know that's a big saving. If you're not paying rent or paying a mortgage, you know, we're talking hundreds of dollars a week minimum that that, that you're not paying. That goes into your pocket, so that's that's one of the perks that comes with um with uh, with working in, in agriculture, and I think that's you know the, these are the sorts of things that often get overlooked when people are thinking about a career, and you know if you're not paying a mortgage for say five years, ten years, that's you know we could get into compounding interest, which I know you like, so you know, 
<laughs> you're speaking my language. You're speaking my yeah, language. Yeah, so th- those sorts of savings you. are potentially life-changing. Mate, our last question. Uh, I, I, I say every every week or every fortnight, I'm an optimist. I think most of my guests have to be by virtue of what they choose to do. I'm guessing you can't be a pessimist and try and run a cattle station, mate. So I'm going to assume you're an optimist, but tell me if you're not. If you're not. But if you are, what are you optimistic about? Yeah, I'm definitely an optimistic. I think you don't jump in the deep end at 35 <laughs> if, if you're a pessimist, you know. So, yeah, definitely an optimist. Um, I think I'm, I'm optimistic about my family. I'm optimistic about our future. And I'm optimistic about agriculture. And um, I'm, I'm optimistic about Australia. You know, I think having seen some of the countries that I'd least like to live in in the world, right. I think that, um, you know, by virtue of the birth lottery we are among the luckiest people mm-hmm. on the planet i just and and it's hard to sometimes get people to to, to realize that but we just mm-hmm. just because you are an australian or because you're listening to this you're lucky you're straight up so you, mm-hmm. you know you you've got to be an optimist and and you've got to make the most of your opportunities so i i do think that um you know the, australia is is the best country on earth and um yeah, you've got to be optimistic about the future. That is a wonderful way to finish, mate. I'm looking forward to the uh, off-air story about the 7.30. But uh, other than that, uh, Martin Cuddy, thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.